Welcome to the Gifted Life Podcast, where we have conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation. I'm Lori Steele. I'm Joey Boudreau. I'm Sally Gentry. Donate Life Month, guys. Coming to a close. What a whirlwind. Wow. wow. It's been great. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And it's been amazing, right? Yep. The blue and green pictures, yes. the stories, Our new folks picnic. signing up to That's volunteer, right. a registry being increased, um, all to save more lives. It's so incredible. But listen, the month's not over yet. Right. Mm-hmm. So share your stories, get involved, use social media to spur positive change because you can do it. One person can make a difference and it could be you right there. You listening. Right. Also, on this episode of The Gifted Life, we're talking about expanding our focus when it comes to donation. Yeah. For so long, we've been trying to maximize the amount of organs that are transplanted and save lives through organ transplantation. Lately, the last few years, Nationwide, we've, we've had a push to maximize those that aren't able to be transplanted, those organs, into research opportunities. Also, I'm going to talk about, is grief always tied to death? Ooh, okay. Is Something it? to think about. All that and more here on The Gifted Life. And we want all of your friends, your family, to hear this as well. We want you guys having these positive conversations about donation. We're going to supply you with some information that we learned from our partners today. So it's going to be a good one and we're easy to find. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, your favorite podcast app or thegiftedlife.org. We love that. And look, social media, I love it because during April, it's flooded with all of your stories. April's not done yet. So our Facebook is Donate Life Louisiana. Reach out to us there. Twitter and Instagram at Donate Life LA. We want to hear from you. We want to help share your story. And give us a call. 504-648-3477. We'd like to hear your story or your question. That's right. We could use that audio right here on the podcast. We have lots to get to, sounds like. Let's do it. Here we go. All right, guys. For this segment, we are focusing on organs and tissues for research. Yeah, Lori. As always, we try in every situation to maximize that loved one's gifts by transplanting as many organs as we can and tissues. However, there are certain situations where transplant is not an option, or that organ may be not suitable, or maybe there's just a better option for research for that particular tissue. In every situation, we try to maximize that loved one's gifts. And you know, too, when we follow up with donor families post-recovery, they express a great deal of interest in learning that some organs may go to research and how it can potentially help or cure some diseases in the future. So it's a very positive outcome in that respect. Yeah, and we are kept up to date because of our research guru, not your real title. <laughs> Tina Madare is in the Gifted Life podcast studio. Hi, ma'am. Hi. Hi. She is Lopa's research program manager. So when it comes to research and the new findings and things that we are learning uh, because of organs and tissues donated for research, I love hearing it from her because you can feel the heart in it and behind it. So let's talk about what we do here at Lopa. Well, like Joey was saying, whenever we have organs or tissues that can't go for transplant, I try to find homes for them with researchers. Uh, We have a lot of great researchers that we're working with that will actually kind of get the researchers together for us. 
we deal a lot with companies like IIAM and NDRI and Promthera. They have hundreds of researchers. We also deal with a lot of local researchers, our local doctors. So the tissues are not going to waste. It gives our donor families hope. You know, their loved one got to save a life. You never know where the research is going to go. I mean, you have the possibility to save hundreds, thousands. Right. And we're about to delve into that. Dr. Mark Atkinson joins us now by phone. He's with the Network for Pancreatic Organ Donors with Diabetes. Hey, doctor. Hey, how are you today? Good. Thank you so much for taking the time. We know that you are busy and we know that we have a lot to learn from you today. Well, I've enjoyed listening to this opening discussion and would like to just begin with two important points. One is that we are so appreciative for organizations like LOPA. We view research as a team-based effort and that uh, there's many, uh, it's the old notion about it takes a village and organizations such as yours is such a key component to what we're trying to achieve in a mission. So on behalf of all of us, thank you for the way you approach this. The second thing is, is as you were talking about transplant versus research, so important. And I, I just want to emphasize one thing that I maybe was a novel thought I had while listening to you, is, is that when organs go to research, it's really an investment in the future, meaning a lot of transplants, you have these you know, uh, recipients that are these are life-changing events immediately. And sometimes research, there'll be an immediate impact. But in some ways, when you donate organs um, for transplant or research, it's balanced. And there, there'll be immediate benefits. And then those that you're, you're banking on uh, based on achievements that will occur over the years. So we're very thankful for the organ donor families as well as organizations such as yours. Can you tell us a little bit? about what the overall focus is that you guys do? Sure. So the focus of NPOD is essentially to answer two questions. One, why does type 1 diabetes develop? And maybe I can explain that uh, more in a little, uh, little bit if you have more interest. But the second way, uh, reason is to try and take that knowledge of why type 1 diabetes develops and turn it around into a way that you could prevent or cure the disease. And the study of human tissues and organs uh, is key to that. Um, if one of the things that we've seen over the years is is that the, most of research up until about a decade ago was on mouse models of type one diabetes, meaning people studied mice, mm -hmm. and they found literally hundreds of ways um, that you could prevent or cure diabetes in these mice, but. As of today, as of 2018, there's zero ways that you can prevent or cure type 1 diabetes in humans. So there hasn't been a good what we call translation of mouse studies to humans. And we think through studies of human organs, we've understood why, is, is that we were learning, in a sense, false information from mice. And it just shows the absolute need to study human tissues. So what kind of breakthroughs have you guys come to as far as seeing what the true cause of type 1 diabetes is. Right. So type 1 diabetes, just as a shortest of backgrounds, is an autoimmune disease. So disorders like uh, systemic lupus erythematosus, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, these are diseases uh, where the body's immune system, for reasons unknown, goes in and destroys its own self. And in the case of type 1 diabetes, it destroys these specialized cells in the pancreas that are called beta cells. They secrete insulin and help the body regulate its blood glucose levels. So 
when we've looked with NPOT and tried to, we've developed models uh, over decades about how type 1 diabetes develops. Through studies of NPOT tissues, where we found that many of the, what I routinely call dogmas about the disease were wrong. I can roll off things all day long here, but I'll say <laughs> one, of, one, of the, one of them is, is actually a smaller pancreas. So few people know about this, and this was not uh, understood. But if you have type 1 diabetes, we found through, again, donations of um, organs from LOPA and others that the type 1 diabetic pancreas is about a third to a half the size of what a normal age and body mass index mass individual is. Really? And we're trying to explore that to figure out why the pancreas is smaller. Another thing is, is that we found within POD is, is that we're finding through new techniques that the beta cells, these insulin secreting cells, probably contribute to their own demise. It's not just a situation of straight autoimmunity, but they're, they contribute to their own demise. And it, it's opening up whole new avenues of therapy and how we might try and predict the disease and develop therapies. Now that you have a better understanding of some of these issues that people have that cause the diabetes, are there certain things that you are seeing that may lead to breakthroughs on how to cure it? Right. So I'm going to split that into two questions. One thing that in terms of the clinical implications is, is it's often been thought that there's just one type of type 1 diabetes. Mm. But by examining tissues uh, provided from organ donors, we, we're now believing that there may be many types of what has commonly been called type 1 diabetes. And there's probably one form of disease that occurs if you're, say, under the age of five. There may be another form of the disease that develops in childhood and adolescence. There'd be another form of type 1 diabetes that develops uh, in early adulthood. And then this form of type 1 diabetes that occurs later in life. And so this has been another impact of studying the human tissues is that we now believe type 1 diabetes is not just one single entity. It's a, a syndrome. Another thing that we found is, is that, uh, and I've been in type 1 diabetes research for 35 years now, the traditional thinking has been there's been no overlap between type 1 and type 2 diabetes in terms of how the disease develops. But now through studies of the pancreas, we're actually finding that many of the features of the type 2 diabetic pancreas are present in the type 1 diabetic pancreas. So this too is opening up new doors of what I'll call crossover, where we might have type 1 diabetes informing type 2 diabetes and type 2 diabetes research informing type 1. And I know I've only spent a couple minutes here, but for somebody that's been in the field as long as I have, these are major changes in in line of thinking. So now that you guys have a a much better understanding of the fact that it's not just one type of type 1 diabetes and that changeover that you mentioned between 1 and 2, you've got clearly a better understanding of that. So what's next with either uh, curing or possibly preventing the type 1 diabetes and type 2 eventually? And that's a spectacular question. And I think what we're seeing is an intersection, if you would. It's almost like the areas of a highway where you don't necessarily want to drive through them, but where you have a bunch of interstates all coming together in a loop. And what I think you have is the intersection of what we've seen with human pathology by studying organs and tissues. You have this intersection of genetics. 
meaning we've heard about the um, uh, human genome sequencing project and how easy it is now to determine risk for disease and what type of disease you have through genetics research. Another avenue that's coming in is this whole notion of personalized medicine, meaning that if you, as investigators, understand how drugs work on certain pathways, um, once all of these forces come together, I think that we're going to be able to identify in the future how to handle and treat patients best for their disease and try and provide them the therapies that are optimized for the type of diabetes they have. And so, but this is going to take a series of understanding of how type 1 diabetes develops in that individual along with their markers that are in their blood and understanding, uh, again, the mechanisms that may lead to uh, how the disease develops. I have a question for you on these different, like 23andMe or Ancestry.com, where people submit, a, uh, you know, a DNA sample, and they come back and they give you, you know, certain markers or variants of what type of diseases you may be predisposed to genetically. Is that something then that people can look at? I know this is a little bit off the off the subject, perhaps, but if they see this showing up on these these tests that they get back, would this be something then that would, would lead them to, you know, want to have further examination of what's going on with them? Yeah. So the answer I'm going to give uh, hopefully is not too long and complex, mm-hmm. but I'm going to just begin with a little analogy, meaning I, um, and I'm 57, and I remember when the first cell phone came out, and it was in this big bag, and it was clunky, yep. and it had batteries, <laughs> yeah. and then whatever, and then like we moved through that, and then it's gone through evolution over the years. And, you know, now we have the uh, our smartphones that essentially are, are <laughs> like magnets to our body uh, right. 24-7. <laughs> I think that genetic information is kind of somewhere along that phase, meaning we're not quite in the big 12-pound bag with a battery, but we're not uh-huh. at the same time at the uh, smartphone level that we're, we're always working at now. Meaning that... 23andMe, um, there's been recent, actually, action within the last few weeks between the FDA and 23andMe in terms of what they can inform and what they can't inform on. Uh Um, Some some aspects of genetic screening are spectacular. And, you know, we've, uh, every state in the United States has been working for years on newborn screening, identifying genetic errors at birth, so if you have a Diet Coke and you can't have aspartame and you're, um, because of the notion of phenylketonuria, within mm-hmm. days of birth, you have a genetic screening and it impacts you. And then it's been the same for th- disorders like cystic fibrosis. So there's some genetic tests that have, are very mature. Then when you get into the 23andMe area, again, it, um, goes through and it, it, they're great. And uh, on a uh, Black Friday, for I, I, I want to do things that I can relate to people. So on Black uh-huh. Friday last year, I did the 23 and, and me test and ordered uh-huh. it and sent it off. And it, just so I could say to people, oh, I did that too. Uh-huh. And, uh-huh. you know, it came, it came back and I was pretty, pretty happy about it in terms of seeing what they said I was at risk or not risk for. But there was a challenge in that it said, you are at low risk for baldness, and your listeners surely can't hear this, but let's just say I'm one step short of chrome dome. So, 
<laughs> so genetics is there, but it's not perfect, and it's yeah. still maturing. And I think in the case of type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes, we have some interesting data, but we're still, as a community, and this doesn't just relate to diabetes, it relates to cancer, it relates to infectious disease, we're still trying to figure out how we can take this genetics information. And I'll just end by saying again, go back to that cell phone analogy, meaning eventually I think we're going to get there, but we're not there yet in terms of confidence. But this again comes back. We'll only get there quicker through the work of organizations like yours. Do you ever share the results of your research with families? Yeah, so one, this is that too. All of these are great questions. That too, something that I'll share and I'll, I'll do it in a way that hopefully will comfort people, meaning we operate in a world today where confidentiality is of both the organ donor as well as their family members is key. Mm-hmm. And part of our effort, and we spend a, a great deal of time, is to try and protect the identity of the individual organ donor and their family. Now, every now and then, as you know, there will be people that will do uh, TED Talks or YouTube Talks and or write books and go out and share their experience. And that's fantastic because it raises awareness about the importance of organ donations for transplant research. On the other hand, NPOT is quite large. We have a support now almost 250 projects in 20 countries around the world. And so we're, in some ways, and I say this with full respect, we are a bit like Memphis is for Federal Express, meaning Mm -hmm. the organs will Mm -hmm. come from all around the United States here to little old Gainesville, Florida, uh, with our two-gate airport. But we will then, in turn, send them around the world. And we need to make sure that there's no way that the identity of the organ donor and their family can be observed by people. So we create what we call a firewall to prevent that. So we respect the organ donor families and appreciate them greatly. And if requested, we'll communicate with them. But we also want to protect their rights and respect their sacrificial gift. Yes. Well, I am excited about the future. When we started, you said research is basically an investment in the future. Uh, You've already learned so much. You know, we're looking forward to see what comes on the horizon. So we appreciate you, Dr. Atkinson. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Yeah. And, and Tina's still here with us. This is Lopa's research program manager. What's your, your takeaway from listening to, to all that the doctor uh, had to say? I can listen to this every day. Yeah. I love to hear our researchers speak about what they're doing. They get so passionate about it. And that's how I learned what's going on and let you guys know. That's great. Yeah. And so we talk about organs and tissues for research. Sir Joey and Tina, um, this happens during the donation process, whether um, they can be used for transplantation and or research, right? Does that happen? Yeah, Lord, it, it all takes place in the same time frame. You know, that family has that opportunity, uh, you know, to say yes to both transplant and research. So it all takes place in the same time frame. And of course, we try to maximize that person's gifts through either direction. Yeah. Well, I appreciate our guest. I learned a lot, Sal. You look like you were blown away, too, by the information uh, that came through. Yeah. And, and, you know, the thing the is, table. the results of all of this can be just so phenomenal yeah. for future cures, prevention, great information. Yeah. And I like what the doctor said. Research is team-based, and it's an investment in the future. And, of course, uh, we'll keep you up to date right here on the Gifted Life podcast. More to come. 
Next up on The Gifted Life, Sally talks about grief. Is it always tied to death? Hmm, interesting. Yes, it is. And of course, Sally is our resident mental health professional, and she's going to continue tackling topics like this. So what do you think? No. No, you're absolutely right. All right. I've been wrong. Yes. Because many times what we don't think about is the grieving that one goes through with, say, separation, mm-hmm. a divorce. Mm-hmm. Life is no longer what it was. Change. There may be children involved, lots of change, mm. a lot of chaos many times in that particular situation. And many times people who have a physical illness or a loss of a limb, you know, someone that's been in war or just an accident of any sort, there is that grief for, you know, I can't do the things I used to do. I can't pick up something or I can't get up and walk somewhere. Um, and also the loss of the person who you thought you knew to mm. drug addiction mm. or to just a health, True. you know, physical illness of some sort. And that can come as, you know, the mental agility of the, that loss when somebody's with Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. uh, dementia, some sort of accident that, that's just caused the amnesia state. And how do you compensate for that? Well, you, you grieve for it because that's just not the way that your life had been Mm -hmm. with that person or with those persons or or for yourself. Um, And I think, too, that you look at there's there's many other losses. You can talk about the loss of, uh, again, your your pet or a move or. Oh, that's what I was thinking when I moved away from my family and I was resistant to change. In Dusan, Louisiana. I was from Dusan. Great. Acadiana. They take you in, treat you like family. And then I moved and said, nobody's there's no place like home until I started getting out and and And, meeting people. And you probably cried and you felt bad and you really had that yearning to go back. Yeah. And I think that's that's what it is. It's that yearning and wanting to Mm -hmm. have things the Mm -hmm. way that they had been. So there's not just the the, someone has died and I'm going through that grief process. There's so many other things that, that when you think about and when we do grieve for these things, there's just as much intensity as it is when you do lose someone that you love through mm-hmm. death. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's something for people to keep in mind that when you're really feeling down and depressed and, you know, what am I going to do? And, mm-hmm. you, and, you, and you cry or you think no one cares. Well, people do care. They just don't realize what you're going through. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you have to tell folks, you know, I'm just really sad because this has happened and I no longer have the life or the person that used to be. Yeah. That's interesting. I think I did. I think I went through that, Sal. Well, there you go. So I'm normal mm. now. I don't we don't think know. So, <laughs> we don't know if it's normal or not. But you know, I'm not sure any of us are. You there are you me. go. But I, I like talking about it because it, it normalizes what some people may be ashamed of. Because I didn't really talk to people about it. I was just like, pick up your bootstraps, girl. Let's get to it. Right. Well, see, and there you go. Many times that's what people think. Well, others will think I'm weak. Well, you know, the thing is this: you have to be true to yourself. And once you're true to yourself, you can say, okay, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about me right now. I'm just Mm -hmm. having a very difficult time. So I need to take some space and grieve the way that I need to grieve. And then I can go on about my life. I have a question. After the floods in Louisiana, August 2016, you Mm -hmm. lost your home. Absolutely. Same thing. Same thing. 
Yeah. I mean, I still think about the things that, that I had wishing I told Joey. I, I wish I could have gotten some books that mm-hmm. came from my mother back when I was in grade school. And as you know, that was many, many years ago. 1982? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I only wish. But I mean, there's pictures. things like that in yeah. pictures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that I can never recover. Uh, and you do, you have that sense of loss because there are times you, you know, you'll mm-hmm. wake up and go, jeez, I know where that was. I just sure wish I had it back. Yeah. But I realize that that's just not the way it's going to be. Yeah. So. You inspired me after that and a new outlook on life because of how you handled that, followed your journey Thank you. with that. So, yeah. Uh, interesting topic. Uh, you have a topic maybe you'd like Sally to cover, info at lopa.org. And we have additional resources for you at lopa.org under the Family Services tab. And as we do in every episode, we like to honor a hero. Today's episode's hero is Keegan Parsons. And we learn about Keegan from his family. Keegan had the biggest and softest heart that anyone could imagine a child having. He loved spending time with his family and was always ready to go and visit the next person. There isn't a day that goes by that we don't remember him or miss him. Keegan was loved a whole, whole lot by many people and will forever be our hero. And now we pause to say thank you to Keegan for the gift of life. In our question and answer segment, This time we don't have a question. We had a family, one of our old family's friends that we crossed paths with years ago who called in to our Gifted Life podcast hotline. Yes, it was the Griner family, and they've traveled the country going state to state promoting organ, tissue, and eye donation. They were so fun. So Mike, Sherry, Levi, Chloe, can you imagine they homeschooled these children, went from state to state, learning not only about donation in that state, but about those states, which was pretty cool yeah, lesson for those, uh, those kiddos. So we stay in touch with them. Following their trek of all the states, they actually gave out awards from folks that they came across. So in Louisiana, we won for enthusiastic employees yes, and are. best outside the box thinking because we just had so much fun with this. They packed everything up into a van and then just went out to explore. So they called in. Let's take a listen to the fun we had. Hi, I'm Sherry, and my family was in Louisiana in 2011 to promote organ donation awareness. My husband received a life-saving kidney and pancreas transplant, and you helped to share his story. I'm so thankful for organ, eye, and tissue donation and what you do to promote it. You guys are so passionate and energetic. I love it. We've never danced with someone wearing a kidney costume outside the DMV before, but only in Louisiana. That's just one example of the creative ways you guys are saving lives. So keep up the great work. We love y'all. The Gifted Life Podcast, episode 81, is complete. We want to thank both Tina Madair, Lopez research program manager, and Dr. Mark Atkinson, the director of NPOD, Network of Pancreatic Organ Donors with Diabetes, for sharing their knowledge and uh, so much that they're doing both from a a local standpoint and nationally to invest in the future, as Dr. Atkinson put it, you know, uh, to, to hopefully not only just save one life, but possibly cure or prevent many others from getting these diseases. Amazing. 
And everybody, it's still April. Yes. Organ donor awareness. Yes. More days. Get inspired, folks. Go do something to help make life happen. There you go. Go out and do something today that you don't normally do to help us make life happen. You can do it. You right there listening. Uh, Maybe you're inspired to sign up to be a donor. You can do that right now. Doesn't take much time. Registerme.org. We hope you have a good one. This is a production of the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency, or LOPA. The Gifted Life is hosted by Lori Steele, Joey Boudreaux, and Sally Gentry. Our producers are Kirsten Hines and Shalon Carraway. We are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Metairie, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez.